and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we're reviewing our July graphic novel of the month for Dark Horse Comics Month, Polar and Black Kaiser. And here to review both is Doc. Doc, how are you? I am great, Angus. How are you doing today? Doc, I am doing wonderfully. And not to also bury the lead, but in addition to reviewing Polar and Black Kaiser, we are, thanks to you, also going to be reviewing the Polar live action film based off of this Polar came from the cold graphic novel that we read. Now, Polar is a 2012 webcomic series and a series of graphic novels written and illustrated by Spanish cartoonist Victor Santos. They feature international hitman Black Kaiser, and the webcomic is inspired by a variety of action and noir fiction. Now, Polar is characterized by its highly stylized design and complete lack of dialogue, though speech balloons were added in the graphic novel publications by Dark Horse Comics. The live-action film premiered on Netflix in January of 2019. Now, We read Polar, Volume 1, Came from the Cold, which was published in December of 2013, and Polar, Volume 0, yes, a prequel, The Black Kaiser, which was published in March of 2019 to coincide with the Netflix film being released in January of that same year. Doc, wow, (laughs) what an experience this thing was. It was, um, um, I didn't know what to expect. Like I said, I watched the movie, didn't even know at the time when I watched the movie that it was based on a, uh, a, a web series slash series of graphic novels. And um, so that I didn't realize it until we were talking what, way early in 2023 about doing this. I'm like, hey, does that have anything to do with the movie I watched? <laughs> and then yeah. I kind of made the connection. And then reading this was, wow, it was, it's so... It's very different. It's it's very unique, and I think it's a unique in a great way. I, it, it's really interesting that when it was written, there were really no there was no dialogue in it, and I thought that was really cool. And um and I, I, I so I would it would have been fun to experience it that way without having all the dialogue we have now. Um and um but uh whatever Dark Horse I think did a really good service though to it because I'm sure it fleshed out the characters a little bit more by giving them some dialogue and everything. But um yeah, this was a this was a really good um kind of a good find and it was uh fun across the board from both mediums reading to watching it was uh completely entertaining a hundred percent through. Doc, I am 100% in agreement with you. And frankly, I had chosen this selection here just based off of the highly positive critical reviews of this graphic novel. And I had an inkling that in fine manga tradition, this would be a very illustrative storytelling dominant piece of work. And indeed, that's what we got here. Now, I don't want to go too deeply and spoil it because after all, we love to open up every one of our episodes with a little Kirby Colonel, a little kernel of knowledge about our namesake Jack and where Jack's former works maybe tie into this selection. And the common ground we'll be discussing is Kirby's use of hitmen in comics. Hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. 
Time to harvest another Kirby Kernel. All right, Doc. Now that we're into our Kirby Kernel, Jack told a lot of different tales and went into a lot of different genres to present really compelling stories in the comic book medium. Now, Jack told tales about Murder, Inc., Murder, Inc.'s hitman, Kid Twist, the Mob Ladies, and The Ride. And he did a lot of this back in the 40s, but then resurrected it in the 70s. As a matter of fact, it would come into the amazing world of DC Comics And Kirby and Carmine Infantino at the time, who had recruited Jack to come over from Marvel to then go to DC, were seeing trouble for four-color booklets at the newsstands with no recent hits for any comics company. And they decided to expand their horizons and look into formats that National at the time, which was DC, wasn't publishing. So Jim Warren's Eerie and Creepy those black and white magazines that you and I both love, offered horror comics that were clamped down on nearly 20 years previously by the Senate Committee on Juvenile Delinquency Hearings and the establishment, of course, of the Comics Code. Now, we would see a loosening up of that Comics Code in the 70s, and this presented a prime opportunity for them to think of maybe something new to present. And Perhaps considering the recent success of Arthur Penn's 1969 movie, Bonnie and Clyde, with its at the time hyperviolent ending, as well as the concurrent filming of Francis Ford Coppola's Mario Puzo's best selling novel, The Godfather, starring Marlon Brando, Infantino greenlit Kirby's return to the what was once neutered by the comics code, crime comics for an In the Days of the Mob black and white magazine. Now, not that Days in the Mob was anything new for Jack, because again, as we have discussed and gone into detail in some previous episodes, Jack was into crime comics and did quite a bit of those back in the 40s. Now, when he did that 20 years earlier with Joe Simon, he had never produced a magazine before. Everything had been subject to you know approval there and tastes were what they were back in the 40s and into the 50s and it it was pretty tame so what they decided to do was get an imprint made called hampshire distributors limited so that would distance itself from dc's national the superman brand now the magazine and then they had a sibling publication called spirit world were essentially dead on arrival And it was due to National not knowing what would happen if presented in the magazine space. National decided that, you know, we're getting a little cold feet here. We'll we'll put one issue out. But they made it so you had to order it. Uh, Okay, look, comic book enthusiasts at the time were used to picking up their comic books at a newsstand or a spinner rack. Very few were going to order a magazine here, but some did. Uh, and unfortunately, this ended up just being bad timing because the Godfather film wouldn't come out to 1972. But by the fall of 1971, this thing was pretty much dead on arrival. And frankly, Doc, I really would have loved to have seen if this comic, this magazine, 
could have actually found its way to uh, to retailers, to news racks across the country at the time in which the Godfather film came out. Oh my word, that would have been amazing. Mm-hmm. That would have been. It seems like they missed a really good opportunity for um, some like unintentional cross promotion. You know, with all that popularity of gangster movies and everything. So it seems, yeah. Once again, it just seems like it was a uh, a missed opportunity with uh, with Kirby. Yeah, unfortunately, and I, I tell you, online and folks can see a lot of these illustrations either over at the Jack Kirby Museum online or tomorrow's publishing i know they have actually put up the panels from the unpublished issue number two of that series which is absolutely brilliant it is some incredible black and white work and i know jack was not big on black and white comics he he loved color in there but i have to say from a detail perspective it is definitely some of Jack's finer work. It's really uh, some amazing, amazing panels to see. And really one that'll go down in history of what if, what if this had happened? What if this had been a- allowed to flourish? Well, with that, Doc, let's head over to a little creative chatter about our writer and illustrator, Victor Santos. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Victor Santos was born in Valencia, section of Spain. Began his career in 1998 by contributing to fanzines and local papers. His first professional work was Gaijin, published from 2007 by Sevamonos, Dude Comics, and Dolmen Editorial. He also took on the heroic fantasy series Los Reyes Efos and an anthology of short stories called La Donacella y los Lobos. Santos has incorporated a lot of pulp heroes in the saga at Astonbury and did a superhero comic protector from Dolmen, a juvenile comic called Aventuras in el Mundo con Alita Ediciones and fantasy titles like Ferret Gangs and Lone in Heaven. For the French publisher, Soleil, he created the series Young Ronin, for which he does script, art, and colors. Apart from publishing multiple comics in the Spanish market, he has worked for several American publishers like Image, DC Comics, and IDW Publishing. He is one of the most fruitful Spanish authors of his generation. So, Doc, this is a very interesting creative who... You know, frankly, outside of Spain and France, really is not as widely known to an American audience. And and frankly, in some instances, such as yourself, really weren't aware of him until that Netflix film came out in 2019. And you actually didn't find until 2020 saying, hey, this was one of those pandemic finds. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it was kind of running out of things, and I didn't want to start a new service, new streaming service. And Polar, um, I saw that in there, and that's when I watched that. But it agreed, one hundred percent. It's uh, I, guess, I don't know if it's maybe because maybe um, uh, Santos's other works never ne- never really made it into um, what we would consider like the the American mainstream. Maybe that's why I you know I, I wasn't aware of it. But um, like even in my comic book store, I never saw like 
these covers would stand out now because of yes. their kind of their simplicity and their art style, which is just fantastic. Um, I just, I don't even remember like seeing these sitting on the shelves. So it's like something that seems like it kind of flew, but it was dark horse, which is, you know, surprising. So it could have been me. I don't know. Um, but, um, uh, I'm certainly glad that we found it now and it's definitely, he is, I'm curious to read some of his other works now and see how they, um, you know, how he pairs up in other genres. Um, because this one, obviously he hit his stride with this one because without reading any of his other stuff he definitely uh takes the ball and he just runs with it and you can tell he has a really fun time with this black Kaiser character doc he certainly does and you know i also think this is indicative of the new brand and and it's new within the past 20 years okay so it's a little dated yeah. here what i'm about to say but I, I think there's a lot of truth to this and that is that modern creatives save their own intellectual property their originals for distribution companies that have favorable deals, such as a dark horse or an image comics, and then will freelance themselves to go play with legacy IP characters over at Marvel or licensed properties at IDW or a, you know, legacy characters over at DC. So this is not surprising that we perhaps were unaware of this series because let's face it, Dark Horse and Image do as great of a job as they can in promoting their material. But at the same time, they do not have the legacy bullhorn, if you will, or the voice behind Marvel, which is owned by Disney, or by DC, which for the longest time was owned by Warners. So, you know, I think we actually have Netflix uh, of, of all companies here to thank for bringing this to the surface. And although, yes, at the time there were enough reviews and very favorable reviews of Polar that were happening when it was published, it just didn't have the amplification to get to a wider audience. And I'm hoping now, not only with folks listening to our review here, but then also the fact that Netflix is so invasive and, and in so many households that folks will give that film a viewing as well as read the graphic novel, which basically, when you're looking at it, Doc, is an incredible storyboard. It really is. Yeah. As a matter of fact, with that doc, I, I'm finding myself leaning into the writing and illustrations here. So let's head over yeah. to our literary aisle where we will discuss the writing and illustrations of Polar and Black Kaiser. Our land hole. There's our literary aisle. All right, doc. Now that we're on our literary aisle, I just want to give our listeners a little background here as it relates to the story. Victor Santos conceived his protagonist of Polar, Black Kaiser, for an action noir comic. Again, he published it in 2010. I think this is important. This started as a webcomic, and it would only be a couple panels at a time. So it really ratcheted up the tension for those viewers, those readers of this webcomic, 
if they were following Santos as he was putting it out there. Now, Black Kaiser was inspired by Jim Steranko's Shields comics. Okay, this is of no surprise whatsoever to me. When I when I looked at this, I saw the eye patch and everything. I immediately thought Nick Fury. Okay, yeah. which and mind you, it's a loving homage here, folks. Mm-hmm. There's just no ripoff. This is a loving homage. And Santos described the creation of his story as mixing classic Marvel books, Trevenian novels, Bourne movies, and manga action. Okay, he knows what he's created here. That is a perfect description (laughs) of exactly what he's created. The publisher of Black Kaiser eventually lost interest in the comic, though Santos still had various narratives in mind featuring the character. So Santos decided to exclude any dialogue in Polar, primarily so he did not have to waste time in translating the webcomic from Spanish to English. Now, this stylistic choice was made simple to commit to at least the start of the webcomic as Polar begins with a really incredible action sequence. However, Santos noted that leaving out any dialogue became more difficult when Black Kaiser started to do investigations as he had to depict conversations using solely gestures, facial expressions, and repeated imagery. Now, he would go on to say the story of Polar is improvised. Though Santos does not have a direction in mind, Santos sketches the pages for Polar with pencils using a red marker to indicate which places he wants to depict in red, or as we saw, in orange. Sometimes he makes some changes after scanning a new page in order to reach a certain balance of color. When Santos started working on the third season of the webcomic, the story started becoming more complex and he needed more colors and art elements to balance the figures out. Okay, so I know I started to get in some of the illustrative aspects of this, Mm -hmm. but I think this was important to bring all of this to light to frame our discussion around the story and because there really isn't a whole heck of a lot of dialogue here to talk about, Doc. So with all of that being said, what were your initial first general impressions of this story here, and actually both stories, but let's first hit Polar. What, what were your general impressions of this story when you picked up this graphic novel and dove in? So I, I went into it, um, as I do with most uh, works that I'm not really familiar with, I don't, I don't go and read reviews of it first because I don't want to know anything about the story. I want to kind of experience it you know, as the pages turn. And um, I really, I thought, I thought it was very, very cool how um, they were able to get so much um, detail in um, through the story with with the artwork. They, uh, I really liked the story. I kept the only thing I read about it was it was a spy thriller, and I kept, I kept waiting for those spy because you know obviously you hear spy thriller, you think of James Bond, and I was looking for kind of like James Bond esque kind of um, you know infiltrating, and the, but that's not really what these at least these two volumes really weren't about. That it was more of that retired assassin um who is um um uh you know being hunted down now for some reason and he has to find out who's at the top of the conspiracy etc cetera, etc cetera. so um i thought it was kind of interesting that they that they're labeling it as like a spy thriller because i don't i didn't really get that from it but uh but what we did get i was absolutely fine with it was and it was kind of like almost i mean i even thought of in some ways like you know um um a punisher in some ways too and uh, how you know the Punisher is at heart 
you know, he's doing he's doing what he thinks is right. And uh, we see in, in these later years with uh, the Black Kaiser, I don't think he ever thinks that what he did was right. It was just a job for him. But um, he is, you know, you can tell that he is he is being set up as um, as kind of like this anti-hero, the guy that you're gonna you're gonna be rooting for the assassin in this because there's guys that are worse than him out there, both assassins and the people that he worked for and everything. So I really I really enjoyed the story. I thought it was uh, I thought it was really interesting. The uh, I know we're not doing the artwork quite yet, but the artwork just really just grabs you. And it's one of those really rare occasions where sometimes, um, and I, I'm thinking of like some uh, and some Scott Snyder and Capullo um, when they get together and do like um, um, death metal um, and things like that where there's so much there's so much with the story and there's so much with the art that it takes you you know you just read through it the first time and then you look through it the second time with the artwork in this one in Polar you can kind of really enjoy both equally as much because you're getting a great story and the art is so minimal not just with the colors, but even with like how much is going on on each page that you can really take everything in all at once. And it's, so it's, I think it elevates it that way. And that's what I really love. I just love the way that the art and the dialogue um, just merged together and really created this great experience. Yeah, it is a, oh my gosh. It, the story itself is, is wonderful. I, I like it. Now, it's not something wholly original because we've seen in other stories about a professional that's coming to the end of their career. Yet, you know, they're called back into service to do what mm -hmm. they do best. Okay, there's, there's too many stories like that, that to start naming them all right now. But we all know and can name off the top of our head at least a dozen. Okay. But where this one really shines is in how wonderful the illustrations clearly depict the story that Victor Santos wants to tell. So mm -hmm. from that standpoint, Doc, I'm in 100% agreement with you. Yeah. And a matter of fact, so much so that this is a, a fast read. It is so Extremely. fast. Mm -hmm. and, and now, now, mind you, folks will say, well, wait a second. How, how can that be? Trust me on this one. The panels are so direct. It does not leave anything left for the imagination. You know explicitly what's going on, which is good. It is very direct storytelling. Now, that isn't to say that I didn't spend minutes on a single panel at times because it is such so beautifully rendered mm -hmm. and i truly felt the love that victor santos must have had for jim starenko because starenko was extremely talented in depicting a lot of action and conveying a lot of drama and tension without having to have a single dialogue bubble or box of exposition in a panel. Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, Victor Santos is a brilliant renderer of essentially movie storyboards. And that's what we've got here. So it is not surprising to me that we had this converted into or adapted into a live action film over on Netflix. 
because everything about this series, as well as Black Kaiser, screams storyboard to me. And in all the positive sense of the term, not in the primitive. No, 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 no. This is literally here, here, camera person, is how you're going to have to frame this action shot. Boom, right there. And it is boom, right there Mm -hmm. in the panels. And we'll get into the movie a little later on. But I have to say, I had many a moment after having read both of these graphic novels and then taken in the polar Netflix film where I went, whoa, I see the translation happening, the rendering right here, the, the adaptation happening right here. The biggest, the biggest obstacle that the creators of the polar film had to overcome was a lack of dialogue mm-hmm. <laughs> in this one. Yeah. So the writer's room actually had to do a bang up job to make sure that the level of that dialogue was worthy of the brilliant panel work that Victor Santos did here on these two graphic novels. So I, I, I am so pleased that my experience of reading both Polar here and, you know, came in from the cold uh, and Black Kaiser lived up to all of the accolades that had been thrown Victor Santos's way when he first published through Dark Horse the first graphic novel back in 2013. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. It is when you even be, you know, even if you don't realize that there's a movie. Um, it, it you do you read this and you're like this looks like somebody just took their storyboards and uh, and you know put it into graphic novel form and uh, and usually when you if you say that that's kind of derogatory and negative but in this case it's completely not because the artist did it that way on purpose the uh, Santos the writer the creator he did this on purpose this is his uh, this is what he wanted and I think it shows I think it kind of like the art <clears throat> excuse me reflects the character of Black Kaiser a lot. Black Kaiser's mysterious. We don't know a whole lot about him. And the artwork is a little bit mysterious. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of detail, so we're not getting a lot of things filled in. So it kind of reflects the uh, the whole um, atmosphere that Santos is trying to create with the uh, with the story and the, and the character. Because um, I think there's like, in the uh, in the first one, the Black Kaiser, that there's one page where we get kind of a, a very, very um, summarized um backstory for black kaiser and his training um we don't really learn about his life we just learn about what you know what program he came out of during the cold war and i think that was one page and that's the all we get in these both of these books about um his background that's direct we get some other you know peripheral ones from different people that he talks with we get some you know ideas and stuff um but uh that's why i like that too that they did keep him very mysterious and uh we don't quite yet know his full background and and everything we know the training um and uh you know one of the main organizations that he's up against now who's kind of chasing after him damocles uh was it damocles incorporated or yeah yeah 
something I know is Damocles. And, um, and so I thought that was really, I, I just, I just loved how the, uh, the, 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 uh, all this was conveyed through that artwork. It's just, it's just so fantastic. The, the scenes of, and it does get violent. I mean, there's no doubt it is. There's a lot of blood dropped and uh, drawn and, uh, but it's done. The artwork is done so well on those, on those really pages. It's like, I'm looking at one now, it's just like a white background. You see this basically like the black silhouettes of the people that are in the panel. It's Black Kaiser and two, and he's putting down two other people. There's just like little tiny dots of blood just splattering throughout the air, and you don't see any details. We're like really good details of anyone. You just see his eye patch. The eye patch is white as well to go against that background and against his black silhouette, and it's just so awesome. So it's like it's not glorifying or exploiting the violence is just the violence is part of the story. And I think he, that was really smart move to do that, um, that he downplays, you know, just how violent black Kaiser is through the artwork and just, just loved how he did everything here. Yeah, I, I do too, doc. And there is a big difference between you know, polar came in from the cold, which was 2013. Yeah. yeah. And then black Kaiser, which was put out there in March of 2013 to, you know, correspond with, the January Netflix release of mm -hmm. the the Polar movie. And there's a lot more dialogue and a lot more exposition over oh, yeah. Black Kaiser. And Black Kaiser mm -hmm. truly is because it is volume zero. It's a prequel. So it yeah. gives us the background of what the Black Kaiser was doing prior to the Polar series really taking off because all the subsequent volumes after Polar came in from the cold, I believe, are just continuation moving forward. It's where I think this is the first one that really dives backward to give mm -hmm. you the back history of, of the character. And, you know, I, I'm finding myself very quickly because this is so highly effective illustrative storytelling, dipping into the illustrations. So, Doc, let, let's just jump there, please. Hey, let's do uh, it. Be, be, be because, you know, the, the dialogue and this is no knock against Victor Santos or anyone who is trying to assist him as far as any translation is concerned. Uh, the dialogue's fine. It, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's nothing to write home about. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's serviceable for, for the, uh, the graphic novel. The, the real thing shining here is the art. So when looking at the art, Victor Santos listed a large number of influences on his Polar website. He states that the minimalist and direct style is inspired by films such as The Samurai from 1967, Tokyo Drifter from 1965, and Point Blank from 1967, as well as novels like The Killer Inside Me from 1952 and The Iger Sanction from 1972. Santos describes Polar as a tribute to artists like Jim Steranko, Jose Antonio Munoz, Alberto Brescia, Alex Toth, and Frank Miller. Santos got caught in the manga explosion of the 80s and 90s when manga really started to make its way to the West. And during his teenage years, came in touch with many United States comic book artists when he was at university. In an interview with Comic Book Resources, Santos said that he was introduced to many 1960s films by someone from his cinema class, and that they both were big fans of the work of John Woo during his time at university. So 
Doc, I see all of this yeah. uh, within these illustrations. There's just Absolutely. no doubt about it. Now, the Alex Toth, okay, I, I think he's more of a uh, a fan than I would say taking on Toth style. Mm-hmm. But you definitely see the elements of Frank Miller here. But to differentiate himself from Frank Miller, there's no red. His yeah. red here is orange. And I think it's great, the effective use yeah. of orange. I also would not be surprised if he was influenced by someone who both you and I are, are, are big fans of and the creator of Hellboy. Mm. And the reason I, I bring this up is the use of shadow in here and black. Whenever you are doing a black and white illustrative work, you either have to go in with a lot of detail or if there is blank space, either leave it white or you fill it with black. Because we're talking about a hitman here, we're talking about assassins, we're talking about, as it's been described, but you and I are still trying to find it, the espionage and the spy thriller and the intrigue, there's a lot of shadows and working in the shadows. And, and I think very clearly here that Victor Santos leans into the Mike Mignola of it all and providing us some really effective use of black and, and making even these collage pages of illustrations within illustrations but them being very dark within utilization of the white there to make some of the outlines of figures really pop. And I, it's, it's unique unto him. I, I've, I haven't seen something quite like this to this degree. I, and I think he is a wonderful embodiment or mashup of all of these influences that he had stated previously. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. There's nothing, nothing to add to that. It's, it's exactly like you say the, uh, just the, the use of the shadows. Again, you can, you can definitely see, especially with the way that um, Black Kaiser himself is drawn. You can see a little bit of that Frank Miller kind of uh, um, influence in some of those very angular features, like the nose and the chin and everything. Um, you can definitely see that. And as well, as well as everybody else you said, and, and, and it's funny, you, you wouldn't think, well, how can you see, you know, John Woo influence on a, on the pages. And it's like, well, read polar and you will, because there yeah. is most definitely a John Woo vibe to going on. And he captures it. And like you said earlier, like he captures all this without, it's not just ripping it off because he doesn't have his own style. These are like definitely homages to all of these different genres and everything. And that, that's what was so great about it. You get so many different genres going on in this, um, in these comics. It's, you know, like, like, you know, the ones you mentioned, just the basic spy, um, that kind of retired, um, the hitman in from the cold kind of deal that he, they have to reactivate him for one more mission. And then he gets caught up and kind of, um, double crossed. And then, um, but then there's also like little things, um, with, uh, with other, with other genres. Like for me, I found like, well, obviously the noir genre, like those old detective kind of movies and, and books, and it's very pulpy. And also that, uh, the, um, the Italian, uh, and I never know if I pronounce it correctly, the giallo, giallo that Dario Argento was known for and Mario Bava and everything where they take a basic 
you know, noir setup of like a detective that he's, you know, he was hired by this beautiful woman to go and, um, you know, investigate this murder. And then with the Italian Giallo, what they would add to it is like, there might be a supernatural element or just a good old fashioned slasher killer. And so they add all these different elements to, um, the, uh, the, the typical noir thriller and they make it something unique. And I felt, I found a lot of those same things. There's even, even though we don't get a lot of it, there are like slight supernatural, um, um, with with his background that um, he was uh, um, given like I think it was a hormone uh, or enzyme enhancements for his for his strength and his durability and his uh, and his intelligence too and that's it they just mention it and they don't focus on it so it's almost like you know a little super soldierish you know with uh, with the training he went through and I'm sure it's something that they will come back to like in future issues and everything which this is I'm gonna stay I'm gonna definitely find some more of these because these were I really want to know more about this character he did a great job of kind of teasing and giving us enough, but also wanting us to know more about him. Yeah. And doc, what you're describing right there, I think is great as far as covering the encapsulation of the Miller influences, as well as those others. I want to touch on the Steranko of it all here because that, that, that's really what immediately drew me in illustratively. And I want to go to specifically there is an introduction to the Nick Fury collection that Jim Steranko had done, provided by none other than Larry Hama, who, again, I love Larry Hama. He's just, you know, that's a legend right then and there. And he said of Steranko that he combined the figurative dynamism of Jack Kirby with modern design concepts. A lot of that coming from Steranko having worked in design and graphic design and graphic arts prior to coming into the comic book world. And Steranko introduced and popularized in comics art movements of the day, such as psychedelia, uh, op art, drawing specifically on the aesthetic of Salvador Dali, uh, with inspiration from Richard M. Powers, ultimately synthesizing a style he turned zap art. (laughs) I totally... (laughs) Totally, totally, totally see that Starenko's influence here on Santos is profound because he would also go on to say that Starenko drew on James Bond novels and claims that the influence went both ways. Starenko was primarily influenced by spy movies after Nick Fury came on the comic scene and directors of those same movies began to borrow heavily from Starenko himself. So, and and he also used, and this was also a technique embodied by Jack Kirby, photo montage. I, I totally see this photo montage thing happening here, though it's not actually using photos and it's not using the collage techniques that Kirby would use. But 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 actually, this is pen and ink versions of this, of utilizing a photo montage esque technique to create these murals on some of these pages, which are absolutely gorgeous to behold. And sometimes, Doc, it's a reverse uh, usage, meaning utilizing of all black, but using a white shadowed figure or silhouette. I mean, it's wonderful. It's not mind tricks, but it's presenting the reader with the unexpected. And I love that. It was... I looked forward to turning the page as to what was Victor Santos going to surprise me with next. 
What was he going to entertain my eyes with? And from that standpoint, I cannot recommend both Black Kaiser and Polar here came in from the cold enough because it is a visual feast with compelling visual storytelling. And, but also at the same time, a very quick read if you just want to get the down and dirty, but also one that you can go back and just get lost in panels looking mm-hmm. at all the various illustrations within illustrations here. And, oh, I just, just really, really amazing work, but at the same time, very adult, uh, very violent. <laughs> very yes. violent. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Uh, and, and one that is definitely made for a more mature audience. There's no doubt about that. Because oh, we're talking sure. about Hitman here, there are themes of um, sex, drugs, um, you know, smoking, alcohol use, all that sort of stuff. All the things that you would expect in a gritty spy, hitman, espionage kind of world. Mm-hmm. Yep, they don't pull the punches on anything, and no. uh, that's, what, that's what made it great. Because it's like it, it's like I said, it's you know, and it's we'll be careful saying it because we're not saying it as a negative, but there's nothing new or groundbreaking with the story here. It, there's not. Um, but it's the way it's presented and the medium that's being used and the artwork, like everything that you just said, it, it makes it feel uh, like fresh. And because the approach is fresh, you know, what you, what, how you're reading it is fresh the material itself may not be, but the, the way it's being presented is a really unique kind of way with the artwork. And I like to call it very, you know, minimalistic, um, not just with the coloring, but with the actual, like, like we both talked about you know, how much stuff they put on each page. Some of it is filled with, um, cause it's like kind of more close up, but a lot of the times it's very minimal about what's on there. So you can really focus on what's going on in each panel. Yes. It's fantastic. It is. It absolutely is. So, so doc with all of that now being put on the table, why don't we delve into our movie review? And as you know, we like to do at uh, kids art house cinema, so kick it over to Klaus. <laughs> and uh, and let's 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 put in the sc- up in the screening room the 2019 Netflix film Polar. For a little background, in October of 2014, Dark Horse Comics announced that Polar came from the cold would be adapted into a live action film produced as a collaboration between the Publishers Entertainment Division there at Dark Horse Entertainment and Constantine Film. A spec script for the film was written by Jason Rothwell, and the companies hope to be able to begin shooting the feature in the spring of 2015. Now, in October, fast forward, of 2017, it was announced that Mads Mikkelsen would star in the action thriller Polar. The Swedish director, uh, Jonas uh, Ackerlund, uh, helmed Jason Rothwell's adaptation of the Dark Horse graphic novel, Polar, came in from the cold, and Mr. Smith Entertainment debut, uh, the feature film to international buyers at the American film market, which was on November 1st of 2017 in Santa Monica, California. Now the producers again are Constantine films, Robert Colzer, bolt pictures, Jeremy bolt, dark horse entertainments, Mike Richardson and Keith Goldberg. Martin Moskowitz is the executive producer and also taking executive producer credits on this is also Mads Mikkelsen. So let's keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Netflix eventually picked up the rights to the film and released it on January 25th of 2019. 
Now, of note in this film is the following. This cast, I would not have dreamed of putting some of these people together, but whoever was in charge of casting did an amazing job. Now, Mads Mikkelsen, yes, completely by. He is brilliant as the Black Kaiser. Yes. Okay, I would not have thought to go grab the lead actress from High School Musical, <laughs> one Vanessa Hudgens, and put her opposite Mads Mikkelsen. And somehow, it not only worked, but she was brilliant in this. Mm-hmm. She did a great job. Didn't Other- even know. Didn't even know it was her until I looked at the cast afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah didn't yeah, even yeah, know yeah. it was her. And to her credit. I think part of the reason why she took this film was her continuing efforts to distance herself, not not ashamedly, mind Mm -hmm. you, but just to distance herself from her Disney roots and that high school musical phenomenon. And it was. It was huge. All those shows were playing nonstop in my house with my kids growing up. So I, I am well aware of how popular that film was. And that series then of yep. films made for Disney. And then they even had a series come out. So it's, you know, it, it has life of its own. But it, it had such a huge cultural impact to that generation growing up. So she has no makeup on at all in this entire film. Very plain. Really made out to be a, for lack of a better term, stereotypically a plain Jane. Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of the attraction uh, for her to this role because you are forced as a viewer to focus in on her acting Mm -hmm. and not on her stylized look at all. And she delivers an amazingly emotional performance that frankly, doc, surprised me because she doesn't come into her own until three quarters of the way through the film. Yep. And we'll get into that here very shortly as far as, you know, the big reveal and all that good stuff. I mean, all you're thinking about in this film is, Oh, she's in here for a bit part and playing the black Kaiser's neighbor in a remote cabin up in Montana. Yeah. The, uh, okay. The- the typical love interest, you know, the, the, the yeah, typical maybe love interest. Though, that, may, maybe, maybe, though, maybe. because, because <laughs> you, you, you clearly see that there's a disparity in age. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, maybe there could be something there. But, but, and you're wondering, okay, why does the Black Kaiser have interest in this neighbor? And, 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 it's, and it's not in a sexual sense whatsoever. Oh. It, it, it's it's kind of like this Good Samaritan sense you're going wait a second this is a hired assassin this is a guy who's just business why is he just being so nice to his neighbor well we find that out a little bit later but let's discuss a couple other of these casting guys a standout for you and you immediately recognized him from his british comedic roles as well as doctor who that's matt lucas and why don't you speak to to matt and and his role in this doc 
Oh boy, they 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 took Matt Lucas basically is the uh, is the is the big bad guy um, for the film, and uh, he is um, they they kept from the uh, from the graphic novel the uh, the uh, operation or the company Damocles, um, and it was the Damocles Initiative in the comic book, not Incorporation. I was just looked that up, yeah. and uh, and I don't even think they named him in the comic book, but the he has the same look. He's kind of got crazy hair, these little tiny. Um, little like John Lennon esque glasses that are always colored, and he is just a very bizarre. He was definitely more fleshed out in the movie than he is in the graphic novel, and he just does such an amazing job as the uh, as the villain. Um, so easily could have um, played it too over the top um, and gone kind of comical with it in the role as the villain, but I think he did just enough just to show that he was kind of crazy, and um, um, but he kind of reined it in a little bit too, so he never crossed that line into being comical, and I thought he was absolutely fantastic in this role. He was, um, um, even though he's very, you know, he was very, he's pudgy, he's overweight, um, and so you, sometimes when you see these uh, these kinds of villains, um, but you still feared him because he was so crazy. And um, I thought what, what was great, we just got one little glimpse into his background when he was talking about the sword that his father had from, um, I think it was the Roman days when the Romans put down an uprising or something. Um, and they, and he showed a very briefly a picture of his father on the wall and his father looked just, it was Matt Lucas again, but just aged a little bit in this big portrait. And uh, it was just, it was both funny and it was like, oh, now you know why he's crazy. Cause his dad obviously was, that as crazy too and you just get a little glimpse into the background there um but it was really it was just a really well done villain um you hated him which is exactly what you what you wanted to do um and uh there was no redeeming qualities about him and the way he treated people and it was just it was just a really really nice um way because like i said the villain in the in the, the same villain that is played in the comic book you don't really get much at all from it you just um know very very little and so i think matt lucas probably had fun trying you know he probably be read very quickly the comic book and then he's like i could i could use this i could play off of this and he does a really nice job with kind of taking him to the next level for sure yeah no he, he definitely takes it to the the next level and although not resembling the graphic novel or comic book character in, himself mads mickelson embodies all mm -hmm. of the elements of the black kaiser and then eventually about halfway to two thirds of the way through the film, then ends up donning because of an injury, the, the eye patch, yep. which is signature, which yeah. again is very much a calling card of Nick Fury, agent of shield. Uh, it, it's, it, it's perfect. It, it, it's great. It's right in beat with the comic. I absolutely love it. When, when looking at this movie, the other thing that, that stood out to me uh, from a role is that, um, Aisha Issa mm. plays a uh, fellow uh, assassin, maybe even former love interest, but for sure weapons supplier to the Black Kaiser. And her character's name is Jasmine. And we only get, oh, what, maybe five minutes of screen time on her? At most, knock. at most, yeah. And, 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 and that character is screaming for more screen time and please fill us in on that relationship between the black Kaiser and Jasmine, please. Because for that five minutes that she was on screen with him, they, they had really great chemistry. Yeah, and really you know, good. at one point there was a deep relationship between those two. 
that I think mm-hmm. went beyond being professional. I think there was at one point a love interest there. Uh, yeah, abs- I don't know absolutely. if it was reciprocated, mind you. Yeah, but for sure she expressed that towards him, mm-hmm. uh, and and she was great. And, and then and then the other curveball that I got in all of this <laughs> was again about halfway to two thirds of the way through the film, we get none other than Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> Uh, completely, completely disheveled <laughs> with a beard and doing bad comedy skits at a bar. <laughs> and he is a fellow retiring assassin who meets up with the Black Kaiser, who they have a past. There's no doubt about that. And they're discussing, you know, where they are, what's going on, uh, what's, why. Uh, Damocles is coming after them. And what we quickly find out is that he was hired ultimately to encapture the Black Kaiser. So then he could be taken in to be tortured by blood there at Damocles and ultimately killed by them. So the premise being in this movie that Every one of these assassins was a member of Damocles in this organization. And Damocles actually had a 401k set up for all of their for all of their employees that they paid into a certain percentage of the hits would then go into that. And then they would match it at Damocles and then boom, uh, they would have this retirement fund. But there was one stipulation, and that is that unless the assassin had designated a beneficiary for that 401k. The 401k funds and everything would just come back to Damocles. So what was the easiest thing for Damocles to do in order to see more of a profit? Basically kill off their prior assassins once they ended up retiring so they wouldn't have to pay them retirement. That's the premise in this whole thing. That's That's why they are fighting. It's just business. Why they're fighting (laughs) um, and, and going out and hunting down the Black Kaiser. And this all finally gets revealed at the bar with the Richard Dreyfus character, Porter. And Porter puts a topical knockout agent on uh, Black Kaiser and Madden Mickelson's character. And you're not sure if he killed him because he's kind of foaming at the mouth. Yeah. But didn't even come to realize it was actually some sort of um, sedation deal. And the next scene, you have. Mads Mikkelsen dangling uh, from a the, the rafters being chained up there, uh, elevated, and you have blood going in there with pliers, tweezers, um, all sorts of torture devices, you know, blades, just slowly bleeding him out and um, making life absolutely miserable for him. And it isn't until the fourth day that the Black Kaiser is able to manipulate himself out of his chains uh, to then take over the situation. And then, Doc, we are transported (laughs) into one of the biggest body count scenes I've seen in a very long time, very reminiscent of John Wick. Matter of fact, I was was, um, commenting to my son, I said, who, who loves John Wick films, Said, you know, he said, Hey, you, you watched that polar film? I was like, Yeah, I did, because we were 
uh, prepping it for um, doing the podcast. Like, what did you think? I said, well, I said, you know, Polar is this incredible blending of John Wick as it relates to all of the violence and, and oh, by the way, the, the gun violence in mm-hmm. this, the, the orchestrated nature of it. So, so you could also say, too, that, you know, the John Will, uh, Wick films were also influenced by John Woo films. I yeah. see that completely. Absolutely. Okay. Then, then, then in its DNA, I see definite um, callbacks slash influences of the Kingsman. Yeah. All of the comic booky nature of things. Uh, that happened here, the way in which scenes would cut, the way in which you would be transported to different geographical areas and the names of those areas brought up and everything. You you, you felt like you were transported into a comic book. They did mm-hmm. that very effectively in this film. So you get the noir, you get the over-the-top nature of it all, you get the John Wickness of it all. I will also say, and the, the, I think, the, I, I was trying to put my finger on it, and I couldn't quite do it, until a very recently doc it was like a call, you know about a half an hour before we came on here to the episodes and um my wife was watching uh the professional you know leon mm-hmm. which you know natalie portman's in that movie and of course um i try to remember the gentleman's name who plays the main character uh um, the um the actor oh he is absolutely spectacular in that film um so go ahead yeah 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 so where I'm going with this is the following. I felt that the relationship between Mads Mikkelsen's uh, Jean Reno. Jean Reno, Leon, thank you. Yes. This is brought him up. <laughs> I thought that Jean Reno, who plays Leon in that movie, to Natalie Portman's Matilda mm-hmm. was very much reminiscent of what we have here with the Black Kaiser, Mad Mickelson's mm-hmm. character, and the Vanessa Hudgens character in the film of Camille. Mm-hmm. You had this older assassin with this younger, more innocent, we think, uh, character, mm-hmm. and this nurturing relationship. It's non sexual, but it is a loving and nurturing and caring relationship and towards the end of this film once mad mickelson is gets through that hallway scene is just epic it's right it's right up there that escape hallway scene where where he's shooting his way out uh it is right up there with the great hallway scenes that we've seen in the past decade or so like daredevil it's exactly what it reminded me of. Yeah. yeah. Um, John Wick going through the club in the original movie. Yep. Yep. And, and shooting his way out <laughs> of that situation. It's epic and, and so well done. Orchestrated. Just great. Uh, absolutely amazing. I, I agree with you completely about the, uh, that relationship dynamic, like the professional, um, because yeah. it is, because um, you could see it very clearly. He doesn't have any qualms about sleeping with women who are, that could be his daughter's age. He has no qualms about that, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. young, but for some reason, like, and he's kind of like, um, 
he doesn't know why, but he, and when I say attracted, I just mean like kind of drawn to um, Vanessa Hutchinson's character. And, you know, we see immediately she's very jittery. She's yes. always on edge. She yes. drinks too much. She's always yep. putting, you know, whiskey or bourbon in her coffee and things. Yep. And, um, and there's, you never once get that feeling that there's this sexual tension between them. That's not what his intention is. I think he, no. he unconsciously, and, you know, we don't want to say too much about it because there is a twist in the, sh- in the movie. Um, yeah. But, the, um, you know, he's drawn to her and he wants to protect her and he doesn't know yep. why. And I think he's just, and he showed it from the beginning, like when he cuts all of her wood pile for her. Right. And, you know, and she comes home and she's like, what the hell? And she's looking around, kind of scared, like, why, why is my wood cut? I didn't do this. You know, and different things like that. So you can see he's being more of a father figure, just like Leon was right. um, in, uh, in the professional. Yeah. And, um, um, but I think in the, in the professional, they did put a very odd like sexual tension between Natalie Portman and uh, and Jean Reno, which I thought was weird, but that's a different story altogether. But you don't get that at all with uh, no. Polar at all. So no. it's um it's um I, yeah, it was a really good re- it was a really nice relationship because it it did just like everything else. This movie didn't just go into those traps of. Right. He needs a love interest, you know, if we're going to yeah. put him on Netflix and they, they went the uh, completely different direction with it. Yeah. So uh, doc, I, I I'm, I'm glad we we've done this. We've taken everybody up to the edge, but we're not going to do any reveals or spoilers. No. We, I, I think we would encourage everybody to go watch the movie as well as read the graphic novel. And there are vast differences between the two because of the fact of the lack of dialogue in polar came in from the cold yeah and you now had a writer's room giving voice to many characters who in this graphic novel didn't have a voice but had a lot of action yeah but 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 where where there is direct correlation between the two is incorporation of these panels these beautifully rendered panels by victor santos into the action sequences and shots beat for beat yeah. in the netflix movie and from that standpoint they nailed it nailed it completely. they didn't nail it and, and also you know going through um i was just kind of going through i uh I, I took some screenshots when we were reading the graphic novel and um it really is it's surprised like you say it's like there's so many differences even in the the tone and, uh, and a little bit of the atmosphere between the comic or uh, the graphic novel and the uh and the movie but there's so many things that they lift it right out of the comic book like even even richard dreyfus's character he was in the graphic novel he was right. um you know he was in there and the um, um the end scene when he has the gloves on i'll just leave yes. it at that that was yep. taken from the comic i mean there's so many elements that were lifted directly from the source material which was awesome but it for some and somehow they did such a great job that they made it feel like everything was unique to the movie so i thought that was a really cool cool way that they did that they balanced that out indeed indeed they did so doc if we're to encapsulate here our experience with both polar and kaiser as graphic novels and then the viewing experience of the Netflix series. How would you go about recommending these experiences to others? You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I would always suggest reading the source material first, but I did the opposite. I watched the movie first and then I went back and I didn't think, I think either way, if you want to watch the movie first, 
Um, and then just know that the you know the, the source material is very different um, in tone and everything. Um, but uh, I don't think it would have a difference with your experience either way. I think uh, you know whichever one you do first. And a lot of times, you know, whenever we're presenting like you know like Final Crisis and things like that, that is a huge time investment. You know, to try you know reading something, putting another book on your pile. Whereas these, the I mean, these both graphic novels are like two sittings you can you can really go through them really quickly without rushing through them i mean just like that's like you like you mentioned it's just the nature of it there's not a whole lot of um of dialogue and everything that you have to read so they are really super fast reads and i think you will go back and reread them um uh, because they are um they, they really grab you uh, not just the artwork but the lack of dialogue and um how they convey so much stuff through the artwork and how minimal it is but how much it conveys at the same time and i think it's um i think it's a, a really perfect one for someone who is looking to try something different getting outside the regular dc marvel kind of uh books uh, i think you're really going to like it, especially if you like these kinds of like assassin slash spy thrillers um but i think it's a great a great experience for it and then i i would i would probably read the source material first if i had to do it again and then watch the movie but um i, th I think you're gonna have a great experience with it either way it's, it's just a fun fun read and watch we're kids. Hey, 